It's good to see you here today. Thanks for taking the time out of your schedule to be here to uh, worship the God of the universe and hopefully to take God's word and apply biblical truth to your life today. Probably goes without saying, but it's uh, very true, and so I'll start out by saying this. It takes just seconds for life to change. In fact, it really takes just seconds for life to change dramatically. Some of you will remember Sunday, December 26, 2004. A tsunami in the Indian Ocean killed over 230,000 people. I, I did some research this week. I had those figures written down, and I thought, it just can't be. Maybe years later, they've adjusted those figures. Do you know they still haven't adjusted them? They still believe that 230,000 plus people's lives ended that day. In fact, in just seconds, people slipped out into eternity. I think sometimes we forget that. And millions of others, those that were left behind, their lives were changed forever in just a moment of time. Who here wouldn't remember that on December 14, 2012, a young man walks into an elementary school and just minutes later, 20 young lives are snuffed out and six educators, they're dead. Worlds fell apart that day, and most will never be the same again. Many of you have heard me talk about my pastor friend, Patrick McGoldrick, who went to be with Jesus on December 26th. He wrote this letter on his blog on December 5th, and I want to read this uh, to you. I want to take the time to read it to you this morning. As he is now sitting at the feet of Jesus, I think these words are even more poignant. He wrote this, it was a year ago today that I had what I thought was the worst day of my life. Up to that point, it was the worst. December 5th, 2011 was the day the neurologist confirmed our fears that I indeed had ALS. One week prior, the doctor told us she suspected ALS, but I needed an MRI to rule out a brain or spinal tumor. That entire week, Patrick said, I prayed that I had a tumor. In my mind, at least there would be a battle plan. There would be surgery, chemo, radiation, something to try to fight for. With ALS, there is no battle plan. Instead, you read the info on the web and the booklets the clinic hands you and you wait to lose every muscle and every freedom you've had. Eventually, you stop reading about it because you're living it. I clearly remember walking out of the doctor's office that day in a fog. I could hardly feel the stares of the nurses and staff as they all knew that I had been given a death sentence. You see, people try to hide their looks of pity, but I can feel them. It couldn't be real. It wasn't happening, was it? It was a dream, and surely I would wake up from it. I wish that I could truly say that I wouldn't trade this year for anything, that I've learned to embrace and enjoy this suffering, but I can't. I wouldn't wish this disease on anyone. I have had many worse days of my life since last December, because each week is more awful than the last. It's supposed to be a good thing that the mind doesn't deteriorate with the rest of the body, but I have to admit that lately I wish I was confused and didn't know what was going on. He said, basically, I'm a prisoner in my own body, except for Thanksgiving. For the past three weeks, I've not left my bedroom. I can no longer use my iPad because my fingers are so tightly curled. A crowbar couldn't open them. Outside of my peg feeding tube, I swallow only a few bites of pudding or broth each evening. I'm down to 160 pounds. I can't stand without help, and there's absolutely nothing I can do. I sleep more than half the day, and when I'm awake, the only things I can do are listen and watch. So I listen to my family tell about their day. Dina reads to me about the mail, other messages in scripture. Parker's reading The Hobbit aloud and tells me stupid jokes along the way. Paige calls and I listen to her bubbly voice on speakerphone. 
We watched something together on TV. Patrick was a Notre Dame fan, unfortunately. He's right now because he's with Jesus. So, but he at the time, he said, besides Notre Dame football, I love Duck Dynasty. <laughs> You'd have to know Patrick to appreciate that. Visitors are limited because it just takes so much out of me. So a year later, I'm ready. I know my time is down to weeks, not months. I've accepted that this is the path God placed me on. I would not have chosen it. I don't like it. However, I am submitted that God in his sovereignty decided before all of time to give me a shorter life on earth. And if it keeps his name going forward and promotes his kingdom, then who am I to question it? Who am I but God's servant placed here to bring him glory? It's not supposed to be about me, it's about him. If this promotes his kingdom in Christ's name, then so be it. Just like Joseph, Job, Daniel, Esther, and many others throughout Scripture who ended up in circumstances that they did not ask for and they surely did not like, I daily must choose to focus on submitting to God's will, crying out for his grace and pointing to my Savior. After all, my sins are still my worst problem and Christ took care of that. My prayer is that I can stand before God and say what Jesus said in John 17, 4, I've brought you glory on earth by finishing the work you gave me to do. You'd had to know Patrick to, uh, to fully appreciate that. I understand that. An incredible man. We spent many times in ministry together. God used him in an incredible way as he was a youth pastor for so many years and touched and changed so many lives. But I, at this particular time, when I heard of Patrick's illness a little over a year ago, and quite frankly, on a regular basis, I say these things. Why does God allow bad things to happen to good people? And where is God in the times that we find tragedy in our life? When we first get the news, we never want to hear from a doctor. When someone we love is taken from us, when the marriage that we intended would last a lifetime ends in divorce against our desires, how do we respond when our world falls apart? One Bible teacher, in fact, summarized it this way into six categories, and I think this is really good. I've shared this with you before. I'll share it again. These categories, things I want to experience do not happen. Things I don't want to experience happen. The things I like, I do not get. Things I don't like, I get. Things I'm waiting for never come, and things I'm not ready for seem to always come early. The Bible gives us a great example, in fact, of a man who responded to God when his world fell apart. If you have your Bibles, and I trust you do, turn to the book of Job, Job chapter 1. I want you to step into a time tunnel of sorts with me. And I want to travel back to a land that uh, Scripture refers to as us. And we're not going to talk about the wizard of Oz, or for that matter, even the wizard of us. This was a man named Job from a land called us. His name, Job. I want to give you several things about Job that will help you understand where he was in his life. Number one, his character was blameless. If you look at the first verse, there was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job, and that man was blameless. He was upright, fearing God and turning away from evil. The foundation of Job's character was the fact that he feared God and he shunned evil. Now, the fear of the Lord means to respect who he is, what he says, and what he does. It's not a, it's not a cringing fear of sorts that we have like a, like a slave before a master, but it is a loving reverence of a child before a father, a respect that leads to obedience. 
Some of you have heard me say that my desire as a father has always been, I don't know that I've accomplished this, that my children would love me fiercely and yet fear me. I believe those things are quite possible, not only in a human relationship, but certainly in our reverence with God, that we would love him fiercely but still fear him. Job was a man who feared God. Oswald Chambers said, the remarkable thing about fearing God is that when you fear God, you fear nothing else. Whereas if you do not fear God, you fear everything else. Think about that. If there ever was a true statement, that was it. Number two, not only was a man of high character, of high integrity, but he also had a big family. Look at verse two. It says, seven sons and three daughters were born to him. If you ever needed scriptural justification for big families, this is it. He had a big family. And here is the bigger surprise with Job's family. The kids really liked each other. (laughs) They really got along well. Look at verse 4. His sons used to go and hold a feast in the house of each one on his day. Most scholars believe that meant on his birthday. They would get together. And look at this. And they'd send and invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. That's an amazing thing, is it not? Those of you that have kids, you ever find yourself going, will these kids ever love one another? I'll tell you one day they will. Just just take some time to work that all out. Job was an example of that. This is where some of you would like me to pause and say, well, how do you go about that? How do you go about it? Most Sunday mornings I sit and watch or stand and watch some of you come in and I watch your kids kind of, you know, and I can only imagine what was happening in the car, you know, right before they got there. And so you're thinking, is there a secret to this? How do we get our kids to eventually want to love each other and spend time together? The text really isn't clear, but I bet most of it had to do with the fact that Job and his wife were people of strong character and they loved God. And Job not only was a man of high character, not only did he have a big family, but he was also rich. (laughs) Look at verse 3. His possessions also were 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, 500 female donkeys, and very many servants. And that man was the greatest of all the men of the East. Now you may read that and you may say, I don't really want 7,000 sheep. I don't really want any oxen. If I never have any camels, if I never have any donkeys, things will be good with me. You Maybe you've seen that donkey up here on Green Level Church Road, and you're going, I don't want one of those. I certainly don't want 500 female of those. But you have to understand, in those days, wealth was measured primarily in terms of land, in terms of animals and servants. And Job had all three of those, and he had them in great abundance. It's an amazing thing that contrary to the way it is for many of us in our culture, his money, his resources, those things he possessed did not turn him away from God. He acknowledged that the Lord had given him his wealth, verse 21, and he used his wealth generously for the good of others. And then lastly, he was a great dad. Look at verse 5, when the days of feasting had completed their cycle, Job would send and consecrate them, rising up early in the morning and offering burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For Job said, perhaps my sons have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus Job did continually. The fact that their father, by the way, offered special sacrifices after each birthday feast doesn't prove that the celebration was wicked by any means. It only showed that Job was a pious man and he wanted to make sure that his children were right with God. Boy, we as fathers, we as mothers could do well to be concerned about the spiritual well-being of our kids. 
I don't want to get too far off on a tangent this morning, but let me say to you that we are living in a culture where it is much easier for us to be consumed with our child's soccer skills, with our child's ballet skills, or their academics than it is their spiritual well-being. And I would say some of us would do well to follow the example of Job about what it meant to be a great dad. It didn't necessarily mean that he was at every basketball game, every soccer game, every ballet recital, every parent-teacher conference, but he chose to make sure his kids understood who God was. He took that very seriously and he taught them. And so you can see, boy, if you're a man of high character, if you're respected in the land, in fact, if you're the greatest man in the land, if you've got all of these things, you've got all of these lands, you've got these children, and they actually love one another, I mean, life is good. And that's the way it is for most of us. If we're healthy, if we have plenty of money, things are good with the family, life is good. But what about when things change? What about when things change? Remember how I started out just a few moments ago that it really just takes seconds for life to change, doesn't it? It takes just a moment of time. Look at verse 6. Now there was a day when the sons of God, those would be the angels, came to present themselves before the Lord and Satan also came among them. The Lord said to Satan, from where do you come? Then Satan answered the Lord and said, from roaming about on the earth and walking around on it. The Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? For there's no one like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man, fearing God and turning away from evil. Then Satan said to the Lord, does Job fear God for nothing? Have you not made a hedge about him and his house and all that he has on every side? You've blessed the work of his hands and his possessions and have increased in the land. But put forth your hand now and touch all that he has. He will surely curse you to your face. Then the Lord said to Satan, behold, all that he has is in your power. Only do not put forth your hand on him. So Satan departed from the presence of the Lord. The assertion that Satan is making is that Job is a righteous man only because God is blessing his life. And really what Satan said was really an attack on God. We might paraphrase it like this. The only reason Job fears you is because you pay him to do it. (laughs) You two have made a contract. You protect him and prosper him as long as he obeys you and worships you. You're not a God worthy of worship. You have to pay people to honor you. That's really the accusation that's been made. It's not so much against Job because after all, Job is just a man. It is really after his God. As I read and studied this this week, I realized that I fear that this accusation against Job is true for so many of us who claim to be followers of Jesus. We sing often, blessed be your name, When the sun's shining down on me, when the world's all as it should be, blessed be your name. It's a totally different story as you go on with the song and it goes, uh, when life's not as it should be. See, within a matter of just hours, adversity fell upon Job like an avalanche of jagged rocks. In one day, Job was stripped totally of his wealth. One after another, four frightened messengers reported that 500 yoke of oxen, 500 donkeys, and 3,000 camels were stolen in enemy raids. 7,000 sheep were struck by lightning and killed. And all 10 of his children were killed by a windstorm. King Solomon was right when he wrote in Ecclesiastes, Moreover, no man knows when his hour will come. As fish are caught in a cruel net or birds are taken in a snare, so men are trapped by evil times that fall unexpectedly on them. And that was true for Job. 
Job gives us, though, a pattern of how we should respond when our world falls apart. Now, here's the thing about Job. I said this to my wife last night. Uh, Job's a long book, right? And and I just gave you a summary of just a few verses in Job uh, chapter 1 and 2. Job will spend the next about 40 chapters basically asking God why. Friends will come up to him and try to convince him of why they think. You've always got a friend that has an answer, right? The, The friend always knows why. For 40 chapters, he will try to understand. And it's not till the very end that he understands that God's hand was in what had happened. But Job does, I think, provide a pattern for us on how we respond when our world falls apart. Let me give you these five things real quickly. Number one, nothing gets to us that doesn't first pass through God's sovereignty. Let me ask you this morning. I know those of you that are church people, okay? Meaning you come to church, you kind of know the gig, you know, you know how everything's done, you know, you know when to stand, when to sit, when to raise your hands, you got all that figured out. You would obviously say that this statement is true, right? We, we would give lip service to this, that, that nothing gets to me that doesn't pass through God's sovereignty. But let me ask you this morning, do you believe that? Do you believe that everything that has happened in your life, that everything that will happen in your life, the only way that it happens to you is that it passes through God's sovereign fingers? Do you really believe that that's true? Look at verse 10 of Job 1 again. This is is really uh, cool. I want to share this with you. Satan said to God, verse 10, Have you not made a hedge about him and his house and all that he has on every side? You've blessed the work of his hands and his possessions and him increased the land. I love that. Even Satan acknowledges that ultimately God is in control and he can't do anything unless God allows it. What a beautiful figure, okay? Picture yourself this morning and God has put a hedge around you, all right? Now, we don't mean, you know, one of those hedges that some of us plant, you know, those things that, what are those called, those trees called that grow really fast and people try to plant them and carry to hedge their, you know what I mean? We're not talking about that kind of hedge. We're talking about really an iron curtain, an impenetrable wall that God puts all around us. Picture that. It's all around you and God has placed it there. And the only way that that wall, that that hedge can be penetrated is if he decides to allow it. Think with me this morning, if you grasped the truth of that, not just as truth, but if you really believed it and you lived that way in your life, it wouldn't matter what happened to you this week in your life or what will happen in the future, you will be convinced that it came to me through the sovereign, loving fingers of God. I love that. Nothing gets to us that doesn't first pass through God's sovereignty. Even Satan knew that. That's why he said, you're going to have to remove that. You're going to have to allow me to penetrate that. That's the only way that I can do that. Number two, I've shared this with several people over the last year. Remember, God is the same God in the storm that he is in the sun. That's so easy to say when the sun's shining bright, right? You ever find yourself when you're in your car, some of you do, because you listen to Christian radio, you know, you got Caleb on, or you got some cool CD that you really like, and, and man, you're singing, and, and you're just going, man, could life be any better than this? It's just awesome. Things are going your way at work, the kids you think are being obedient, and things are, things are great in your marriage, and you know, your grass is green, there's no weeds in it. You're getting ready to go on a vacation and you're just going, 
blessed be your name when the sun is shining down on me, when the world's as it should be because I say so. That's easy to acknowledge God as the sovereign one, is it not? It's when the storms come, when it's cloudy out, when it's foggy out, when you can't see your hand in front of your face. That's when it's a little bit more difficult. But here's what I want to challenge you with today. Remember that the same God that is there when you're in your car and, man, you're praising and you're lifting your hands up off the steering wheel and life couldn't be any better, that same God that is there on that sunny day is the God that is there when you don't think that you can see him when it's cloudy, when it's foggy outside. Number three, most of the times we will not know why. Most times we will not know why. Job certainly understood what had happened, right? He had the benefit of messengers coming to him and telling him exactly what had happened. Hey, Job, all of your animals are gone. Your kids are gone. And then you'll see in chapter 2, now your health is gone. He knew what had happened, but why was a different story altogether. If we look further into the book of Job, we would see that his friends assumed that it was due to his sinfulness. This is the same assumption that the disciples, by the way, made in John chapter 9 when they passed by a blind man. And they asked Jesus if he was blind because of his own sin or because of his parents' sin. I love the response of Jesus in, in uh, verse 3 of uh, John chapter 9 where Jesus said, It was neither that this man sinned nor his parents, but it was so that the works of God might be displayed in him. And while we might not understand all the details, we do know that he does what he does in our lives, that his works might be displayed. And it's our responsibility, by the way, to allow that to happen in and through our lives. But most times, we will not know why. Do you know why every time your world has fallen apart, every time tragedy has come into your life, do you know why it's happened? You don't. Some of it we will never know until this side of eternity. We just have to trust and understand that it is so that the works of God might be displayed in us. Number four. Here's a good one that some of you need to be reminded of today. Asking why is not sinful, it's expected. It's not sinful, it's expected. Now, depending upon your church background, there probably has been some pastor along the way that has misunderstood Scripture, misapplied, misinterpreted Scripture, and he's led you to believe that for you to ask why is somehow meaning that you are less spiritual, that you somehow do not trust God, and I don't think that that's correct. I don't think it's sinful. I think it's to be expected. Why do I say that? Well, do you remember when, when Jesus uh, was hanging on the cross, what did he say? Father, why? Why have you forsaken me? It's a very intriguing statement as Jesus is hanging on the cross, because he is part of the deity, he's part of the Godhead. He knows why, and yet at that particular moment of anguish, of physical pain, he asks the question, why? Where are you? Are you present at this time? Job didn't know why, and the next 40 chapters in this book are his attempt to make sense of those events, but in chapter 28, he did come to this conclusion. He said in actually chapter 23, verse 8, Behold, I go forward, but he's not there, and backward, but I cannot perceive him. When he acts on the left, I cannot behold him. When he turns on the right, I cannot see him. But verse 10 says, But he knows the way I take. And when he has tried me, I shall come forth as gold. 
I remember a song that we sang when I was in probably middle school, high school, that were these very words. When God has tried me, when he's put me in the furnace and all the impurities have been removed, what will come out of that is gold. In other words, God has a reason. But asking why is not sinful, it's to be expected. I don't think it's a mistake that we read in verse 22 of Job 1 that in all of this Job did not sin, verse 21. But nor did he blame God. His wife did. If you were to look with me at verse 9 of chapter 2, his wife said to him, Do you still hold fast to your integrity? Curse God and die. We have a tendency to look at her and go, That's the problem. Job, good man. Mm, I don't really believe that that was true either. I think this is a woman who had just lost everything. We remember, she had lost all of her wealth as well. She had lost all of her children, a mom who had just lost 10 children. It's not sinful to ask God why. It's to be expected. And lastly, number five, accepting God's blessing also means being willing to accept adversity. <laughs> I love accepting God's blessing. Don't you? Isn't that an awesome thing? Something good happens and you go, blessed be the name of the Lord. Woo-hoo! That's awesome. You believe God did this. You high school kids, college kids, you do this all the time, right? You get back that test and you thought you didn't do so good and you go, woo, hallelujah. I didn't think I, and you go, blessed be the name of the Lord. I love accepting God's blessing in my life. But here's something I think is really important for us to recognize that accepting God's blessing also means being willing to accept adversity. In fact, this is the way that Job responded to his wife. We don't know. Maybe there was some commentary in between her statement and his response, right? We have to wait till we get to heaven someday. Maybe we can check that out a little bit and say, okay, did you really just respond that way? Because you sound like a really loving, kind individual. Was that really that way? I, I, I don't know. But here's what he said to her in verse 10. You speak as one of the foolish women speaks. It was probably in a biblical way something really cool that he said right there. I don't know exactly what it was, but. Shall we indeed accept good from God and not accept adversity? God's been so good to us. I mean, I am. I'm the richest man in the East. Our kids have everything. Look at the cars they drove. Look at the parties they had on their birthdays. Look at all the animals we've had. Look at all the things we've enjoyed. Should we accept God's blessing and not be willing to accept adversity? If you're willing to accept God's blessing, you also have to be willing to accept adversity. So here, I think, is the ultimate question. How do we respond as the church when someone else's world falls apart? You know, it's real easy for us as Christians, especially in 2013 in the American church, So many churches are full of self-help type sermons, right? It's all about you. This is how you cope. This is how you deal. And those things are certainly necessary. And we take scripture and we make application of them in our lives. But so often we fall short of saying, how do we respond as a church when somebody else's world falls apart? Here's a really cool thing that I've come to the conclusion over the last few weeks as I've been preparing to speak to you today on this topic. God is there. Certainly, when your world falls apart. But as a follower of Jesus, as a person who is part of a fellowship of those that name the name of Jesus Christ, there is a physical presence as well, and that's 
Christ's bride, the church, we have an opportunity to respond. This morning, I want to share with you the story of one of our ladies from Northwest. This is her story of when her world fell apart. Watch this with me. I remember the day uh, Kayla and I were in the car. And we were talking about Jesus, how he loves us, and how he died for us. And she said, Mommy, I want to pray. I said, okay, we can pray when we get home. No, Mommy, now. We pulled over, and right there she prayed. And from that moment, her whole desire was for other people to know Jesus too. We just always say, we love you this big. John would tell that to Caitlin and me, and we'd say that. She was just full of life. I mean, just full of life. She, her name, Caitlin Joy, means pure joy. And she truly was pure joy to us. She was born until I, even pregnant times. I, I didn't have one sick nothing. <laughs> I mean, I felt good the whole time. It was just a, a joy. She drew me out, which is kind of funny to say that your little girl's the one that draws you out, but I am um, naturally a quiet and reserved person. And she was extrovert, loved people, and was very active, and would talk to anybody. And so um, the Lord used her to help me learn how to love people. January 12, 2007. It's the day that our life totally changed. It's the day that I came home from work, found my little girl living with Jesus, and my husband was missing. And I screamed, cried, and screamed like I have never done before. My mind totally went blank. I couldn't comprehend what was going on in that room. I, I, I couldn't figure out what what's happening. Eventually, my sister came, and later that evening, took me home to her house, and we waited. Mom and Dad drove all night. They got in about 3 o'clock that next morning. They walked in the door, and we just clung to one another and cried and hugged and cried. And I'll never forget that. We all sat in my sister's living room in a circle and we prayed that the Lord would somehow get glory and that we would not let Satan have any victory. Well, our story doesn't end there. My husband was found and later diagnosed with paranoid schizophrenia and he currently resides in the forensic mental hospital. The first week, I had people asking me, I was asking myself, now what? What am I going to do? And I didn't have an answer. Honestly, I didn't have an answer. There was that day when I was sitting in the car with my mom. And I said, Mom, I know what I'm going to do. I know what I'm going to do about John. I said, you know, the Lord reminded me that we made a vow. A vow before the Lord and a vow to one another. 
that we were going to love each other in sickness and in health. John Sick, he's not mean or evil, wicked and scary. He's sick. And a couple days after that was when I first got to see John. And the Lord, it gave amazing peace and blessing out of obedience. But what was so neat, it, was, it wasn't just an act of obedience. The minute I saw him, the love was still there. And I think, you know, so much even more than that is how the Lord loves us. <laughs> and it overwhelms me how much he loves us that way because there's not anything we can do or say that will ever take that away. So our marriage looks different from most. We spend our time together in a small, busy room in the hospital. We eat together. We talk about what happened that day. We pray. We pray for everybody that we can think of friends and family that are close to us. And sometimes even other family members and friends even visit with us. It's always a blessing and a joy to us to know that the Lord has surrounded us with His love through people. So we rejoice and we give praise to the Lord. He binds our hearts together. He's given us the privilege of sharing a story of His love, His grace, his sovereignty. And the verse that the Lord has given to John and me just lately is Romans 12, 12. It says, be joyful in hope, be patient in affliction, and be faithful in prayer. And that's what we want our lives to look like. <laughs> One of the songs that summarizes just our life right now is never once, never once did we ever walk alone. You are faithful. Some of you know that Amber was a part of our last membership class that we introduced just a few weeks ago. Amber's husband, John, as she referred to in the video, is, uh, is hospitalized. He's in, at, at Buntner. John's doing well. Uh, he has received the help uh, that he needed, and he continues to receive the help that he needs for his illness. But here's what you need to understand. It's Amber's desire that she be part of a church community. Amber, I was somewhat familiar uh, with her story before she came to Northwest, but Amber sat down with Diana and I a number of months ago and shared her story, and I, I will never forget her telling me about sitting in the car with her mom, telling her that her decision was that I would continue to be faithful to my husband because I made a commitment before God that I would love him in sickness and in health, and he's sick. 
I think about all of the couples that I have sat with, all the women that I've heard after their husbands had an affair or men that I've heard after their wife has done something in the marriage and there's no desire for any kind of reconciliation. And then here I am sitting here with this woman who has dealt with the unfathomable in her life. Gives a new definition to when your world falls apart. And she says, I have received grace. I choose to extend grace. And I will tell you uh, today, uh, this, this comes from a pastor's heart. Amber is an incredible woman, an incredible woman, and we are so blessed to have her at Northwest Community Church. We're very blessed. Amber worried early on what might happen, would the media know where she went to church and what, and I began to prepare what I would say if a news, if, if somebody from the news called me and wanted me to make a statement, and boy do I have statements to make if they call. Because so many times our news media, so many times as even Christ followers, we know one side of a story. And we don't see all the incredible things that are happening just below the surface. And I want you to take the time to get to know Amber. A part of our desire, and I know Amber's desire as we talked when she was actually in membership class, is that people know and understand her story. You can imagine how awkward it is sometimes when you're asked about, are you married? When you're asked, do you have children? You you can imagine how awkward those things can be. And Amber needs to be in a place where you know her story, and we walk the journey with her. And let me say to you this morning, Amber, it is a privilege to walk this journey with you. It's not just our responsibility, it's a privilege to walk it with you. And I want to say to you as your pastor, thank you for entrusting your soul into our care, and John as well. And we take that incredibly seriously as we do each person that calls Northwest their home. And so here's where it gets really practical, church. We have a responsibility and a privilege to come alongside of each other when the bottom falls out of our life, when our world falls apart. But I want to just real quickly here at the end of our time together today, I want to give you five things of how to respond to others when their world falls apart. Now, these are very important. And some of you, when I get done with all five, you're going to go, well, that's pretty simple. Ta-da. It's because I'm a simple person, right? I mean, I put the cookies right down there on the lower level of the shelf, obviously, because I've been grabbing them, right? We put them right down there where you can grasp a hold of these. I, I believe this. After 25 years as a pastor, let me tell you this. If you will... Remember these five things, and we as the church will practice them when others around us, when their world falls apart, we will be an exceptional church. Because it's not a question of, is somebody's world going to fall apart? In just seconds, somebody's world will fall apart. You live life long enough with a group of people Some of you remember last August when I had two white rocking chairs up here and I told you that that was my desire and I hoped it would be your desire to just grow old with a group of people, to learn to love them, to learn to walk through this journey that we call life together. You do that long enough, you don't church hop, but you live life with people like this, worlds are going to fall apart. Times of tragedy are going to come. 
And it's going to be incumbent upon us to understand biblically, according to God's word, how do we respond to one another when our world, when others' worlds fall apart. Let me give you these real quickly. Never say, let me know if there's anything I can do. Never say, let me know if there's anything I can do. Think of how ridiculous that statement is. You know that if my world has fallen apart, that I've got to eat. You know if I own a home, my lawn has to be cut. My house has to be cleaned. There are things because life just keeps going by, doesn't it? And so when we ask people the question, I've done it as a pastor, I try not to do it, but I've done it as a pastor. Let me know if you need any help. Do we really think that somebody's going to pick up the phone and go, hey, my lawn's getting awfully tall. My world's falling apart. Would you come mow my lawn? Who's going to do that? I know like two people that might do that, and they're not here this morning, right? We won't do that. We would never ask. Is the need there? The need's there. So never, ever, ever say to somebody so that you feel better because in your twisted, convoluted mind, you think, well, I said call me if you needed help. Don't ever say that, church. If you grasp that, we will be an exceptional expression of the body of Christ in this community. Which leads to number two, which is very short. You can tell by the line there, right? Do. Just do. Just show up. And by the way, don't sit and talk for a long time because that's probably not what they may need at that particular moment. Just do. If you make killer desserts and you know this person, man, that would just cheer them up, Chrissy. Then you just make that dessert. You put it on the front porch. You ring the doorbell and get back in your car and leave. Just do something. If you know it'd be, a, it'd be a great thing if that mom just didn't have to deal with her young children that day, if she just had some time, then you call and say, I'm coming to pick up your kids. Don't worry about it. I'm going to take care of them. We're going to make sure they have fun. Just do it. Let me tell you, church, if you behave that way, you will be an exceptional group of people, and you will love each other well. Don't say, let me know if there's anything I can do. Never say that. Just do. Number three, sometimes the best thing to say is nothing. Do you know those people that it doesn't matter what's going on in your life, they've got a story about when it happened to them and they're going to tell you and how they dealt with it, how they walked through it? Is there anybody in the room that's found that to be helpful? Nobody. Good. We 100% agree as the human race that that doesn't help. And and let me tell you, I'm a talker. So if anybody could be guilty of something like that, I got an illustration, I got a story, I got a cool line that I can give you at any moment on any subject. Just call me and ask me. Sometimes the best thing to say is nothing. Which leads to number four. Sometimes just your presence is enough. That's hard for for somebody that's got a mouth like mine. But I have recognized because God's put me into situations over the years I remember as a youth pastor getting a call one evening that one of our college guys had taken his life in his bedroom upstairs in his parents' home. And honestly, all the way over there, I'm thinking, what do I say? What do I say? How do I, what do I say to these parents? How do I handle this situation? And when I got in the door, God gave me enough sense just to love them, just to be present, just a strong arm around them. A hug to that father. Didn't matter what I said. 
Just the fact that I was there. Sometimes just your presence is enough. And number five, when you move on with your life, don't forget. Here's where I think we're oftentimes guilty as as a church, the bride of Christ, as the expression of the church in a local church like this. If you noticed our news media has a habit of doing this, that when there's tragedy, the news, the news media just goes, Phew! right there. December 14th, that's what happened in Connecticut at Sandy Hook Elementary School, right? Our media was right there immediately. Everybody wanted to know who the children were, who their parents were, all of this. The media was just giving constant attention. And the media's attention span is somewhat like most of ours. It's very, very short, isn't it? It's only there until the next big event happens, until the next person's world falls apart, or until we just get on with our life and then we kind of move on. And by the way, I don't think that's abnormal. I understand that that's just part of, that's just part of how things go. But as the church, Jesus said what? He said, by this shall all men know that you're my disciples. Why? Because the love that you have for one another. Our news media moves on. Those that don't name the name of Jesus, they move on. But let me encourage you, church, don't just move on with your life and forget that person whose world has fallen apart. That one who's lost a loved one, that will, be, that will last a lifetime. When a child has been tragically taken, that will last a lifetime. When somebody's world falls apart, by definition, it means it's going to be a pretty long time before things come back together. Let's not forget. Let's not be like the news media. So our world does move on, our lives move on, but don't forget. Maybe that's just as simple as you marking down on a calendar. Just to remind, hey, remember this is the anniversary of that event, and just check up on that person. Just make sure everything's going okay with that person. Paul said it well when he wrote to the church at Galatia in Galatians chapter 6, verse 2. He said, bear one another's burdens, and thereby you do what? You fulfill the law of Christ when you bear one another's burdens. Outside of the Great Commission, if there ever was a reason for the local church to exist, this is it. This is something that we have the opportunity to do so incredibly well. To love people like the world has never seen. And I pray it will be true of Northwest. When your world falls apart, trust in the one who specializes in putting things back together for your good and for his glory. You see, there will inevitably be times for all of us in this life when our world falls apart. But here's what I close with and I can tell you. While there will be scars and struggles along the way, As followers of Jesus, we will never be alone. He will never leave us on our own. He is faithful. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this series of messages. It gives me a new appreciation, even as a pastor, to understand that certainly I'm a sinner and I need God the most because I've got a debt of sin that needs to be paid that I can't possibly pay on my own and so I need a Savior. But God, even after I come into a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, 
There are times in life when I need you the most, and certainly when our world falls apart, that's one of those moments. God, thanks for examples like Job. While he questioned and spent 40 chapters trying to figure it out, in the end he said, blessed be the name of the Lord. Blessed be the name of the Lord. God, we recognize as a church that there will be times when worlds will fall apart, when tragedy will strike us, those we love in this body. And I pray that it's during those times that you will cause us to respond in a way where we do bear well one another's burdens. And by doing that, we bring great pleasure to the one who saved us, who made it possible for us to come into relationship with him, enjoy a relationship we were created to have. I pray we'll be that kind of church. I pray that today, if it did nothing more, we'll just awaken the sensitivity that should be amongst us, that we are to love one another deeply. May we not just say those words, but may we live that way in community with one another. And God, thank you for the assurance that we know that though these scars and these struggles of life will come, that we will indeed never, ever be alone. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.